everybody. Good morning. I'm uh, Sanjay Merchant, and I'm a teaching pastor here. I come from Chicago, and I'm really happy to tell you my family's with me today from Chicago. So they're sitting right over here. My wife, Erin, uh, is here, and our children, uh, Serena, Nathaniel, Zeke, and Grace. Uh, my oldest daughter, Serena, she's actually a student at USC, so she's in L.A. It's great to have her. She came to Chicago and <clears throat> has been in, uh, yeah, fight on. Excellent. Um, so she came to Chicago, of course, for Christmas break, and we're all going back to Chicago, and she's going back to L.A., so a lot of traveling for her. And we're going to be up in uh, Orcas Island uh, tonight through, through Wednesday. That's where my wife grew up, up in the San Juan Islands, and that's actually how I know Scott from 20-some years ago. So um, anyway, it's going to be a great uh, time for us to, to see Aaron's family and, and a lot of her family is here today. So um, we are going to be looking now starting a new series on the book of Philippians. And this won't be a four-part series. This will be a number of weeks. In fact, a few months where we'll go through Philippians deeply and fellowship around this book. So if the ushers have the Bibles ready, you guys come forward. And if you need a Bible, let them know. And again, we'll be in the book of Philippians, one of Paul's shorter prison epistles. And as I said, we're going to be looking at this for a number of weeks. Um, We're going to go through it deeply. What I want to do today is provide us with some historical background of what's going on during the writing of the book of Philippians. What is the city of Philippi? Who were the Philippian people? That's all very important to know so that as you're reading Philippians, things will register and stick and make sense. And then you have a context, not just for sort of understanding this epistle all by itself, uh, uncontextualized without having any connection to anything else, but really understanding its place in human history, its place in the canon of scripture and what it has to do with us. And and I think thereby really internalize it. And as I said, we'll spend a number of weeks fellowshipping around this book. It'll be a very focused area of fellowship. And I think we'll really be able to gauge God's, um, the, the, the growth that God does in us through studying this book. So I'll say more about that at the end and give some tips as to how we can pursue that together. But let's start with just the opening Um, greeting of Paul. So that's, of course, just Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul says in the introduction, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just a regular greeting, but let's unpack some of this. He's addressing it to the church at Philippi. So what is this town of Philippi? So you know Greece in the Western Mediterranean. If you go north just a little bit is the country of Macedonia. And there's some debate as to whether Macedonia is part of Greece or if it's a separate culture. In any case, it's the area of Macedonia. Greek colonists established the town of Philippi. It wasn't called Philippi yet. In Macedonia, so it was a Greek colony just a little bit north of Greece in the fourth century BC. So about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. Fourth century BC. Greece, along with that town of Philippi, was conquered within a few years by King Philip II of Macedon. King Philip II of Macedon. There was gold near the town of Philippi, so it was a very strategic place, and it also had wealth. So King Philip conquered the town and named it Philippi after himself. That's why it's called Philippi. It's named after King Philip II of Macedon in the fourth century. You might not know that person. Maybe you've never heard that name before, King Philip. You've certainly heard of his son, Alexander the Great. His son, Alexander, of course, was very young when his father was king and conquered this town. 
And soon after he conquered Greece, he went to look for a tutor for his son. And he got the best tutor anyone could ever employ, Aristotle. Aristotle was teaching at his school in Athens called the Lyceum. Now, Aristotle was born and raised in a town in Greece called Stagiria. When King Philip conquered Greece, he destroyed Stagiria, so he said, I'll rebuild Stagiria for you if you come tutor my son. So Aristotle agreed to do that. We know Alexander the Great because he's very well known for conquering the known world. In fact, he wanted to conquer the whole planet. They didn't have a sense for how big the planet was and, and where all there was to go and conquer, but they wanted to figure it out. And it's not just because Alexander was a megalomaniac and he just wanted to rule the world. Anybody who's like that, these great world dictators and emperors, they're all megalomaniacs. So he almost certainly was that, but he had a deeper reason. And it had to do with the philosophy of Aristotle that he had learned. He wanted to unify the world under one rule, and there was a real reason for it. You have to understand Aristotle's philosophy. And in order to understand Aristotle's philosophy, you actually have to take one step back and understand Plato's philosophy. Plato was Aristotle's teacher. So this is what Plato said. This was his theory of reality. The ancient Greeks wanted to figure out where everything came from, what everything was made of. They were philosophers, but also kind of scientists, kind of sort of natural scientists, before the emergence of modern science. So they used the tools that they had, and that's just looking at things and trying to figure them out as best we can. So they pointed out just the simplest facts. For example, there are things in the world, there are natural things, like this horse right here, and this tree, and the sun, and the planet, and stars. Those are all natural things, and they're all very different kinds of things, and we want to figure out what those things are. Now, as we begin to figure out what these things are, we describe certain characteristics of these natural things, and that was the task that, that they took on. So there are natural things, there are also human artifacts. Those are things that humans produce, like iPhones and hula hoops, right? So imagine a very simple, just to simplify it, let's imagine a very simple human artifact, a red hula hoop. So imagine I'm holding a red hula hoop, right? I was gonna bring a red hula hoop um, as, a, as a visual prop, but I couldn't fit it in my overhead cabin uh, space, so. Anyway, you can imagine a red hula hoop. If I had a red hula hoop, it would be really easy to physically describe. Suppose you ask your friend, can you, can you hand me my, my hula hoop? And I say, I don't, actually don't know what a hula hoop is. You've got a bunch of stuff over here. What is it? You would say, it's that red circle, that red circle. So that's a good way of describing a red hula hoop. It's a red circle. Now, of course, hula hoops aren't actually circles. So when we say, what is a hula hoop fundamentally, Plato would say, you can describe it as a red circle, but it's actually not a circle at all. Well, why not? Well, because circles are, of course, two-dimensional figures, Two-dimensional closed figures where every point on the surface is equidistant from the center, or every point on the line is equidistant from the center. So it's a two-dimensional figure. Hula hoops are not two-dimensional. Of course, they're three-dimensional. So it can't count as a circle, per, per se. We would say, well, it's circular. It approximates the circle. And we can judge some hula hoops as being more round than others by how well they come to this ideal, this ideal circle. And so you've got two hula hoops and one rolls really smoothly and the other one's a little warped and wobbly. You would say, well, this one is more round, it's more circular. It's more like the circle, but even it itself is not really the circle. The ideal circle is not something that you see with your eyes, it's not something you touch with your hands, but it's something you perceive in the mind. But Plato pointed out it's not just imaginary. It's not just in our heads. It's not like some convention we invented. We discovered it with the minds. And what that what that told Aristotle, or rather Plato, is that there's a physical world of the senses and there's this intellectual ideal world and they are two very real worlds. 
And so the circle exists in the ideal world. The circle is eternal, not like these temporal, circular things that come and go. It never changes, it's permanent. And so they all approximate the circle. So Plato's philosophy, just in thinking about simple things, he realizes there are two distinct worlds, which is a huge jump, right? He's already developing a very deep philosophy. Now think about the redness of the hula hoop. We might say nothing's really perfectly red. So redness exists above and beyond red things, just like circularity exists above and beyond circular things. But you might say, well, how do I know that redness exists above and beyond red things? Maybe this hula hoop is perfectly red. Who, who knows, right? Nothing could be more perfectly red. Well, here's what Plato points out. Suppose we were to take all the red things in the world and just incinerate them so that there's no red things. So all the London phone booths and all the fire hydrants and your favorite T-shirt and the red hula hoop just gone. And so there are no red things anymore. It would still be true that red is darker than white. That's still a fact. Now, if it's a fact, if it's a true statement, it must correspond to an actual state of affairs about the world. So it must still be true that red is darker than white. So Plato would say, well, there are no red things, so where's redness? Redness itself is not a red thing, but it is an eternal ideal that makes red things red. It also exists in this eternal world. So you've got geometric shapes, you've got colors, you've got essences like humanness. No one's a perfect human, right? You're like, nobody's perfect. We all approximate ideal humanity, more or less, uh, in, a, in a flawed way. But ideal humanness, so these natures exist in this eternal, permanent world. So you've got two worlds. You've got Uranus, heaven, and you've got the earth. And there's this gap between the two. And so the big question for Plato's philosophy is, how did things on earth made of matter come to be physical, flawed copies of these eternal, perfect things? Plato gave some answers to that, and nobody was terribly convinced. Well, the Platonists were convinced, but Aristotle wasn't convinced by the answer. He didn't really like it. So you've got earth and heaven in this sort of logical gap. So Aristotle's philosophy was about bringing the two worlds together in unison and harmony. There's a very famous painting in the Vatican called the School of Athens. If you were to see the painting, you can look it up. Uh, you would probably recognize a very famous painting. And it's an Italian... Um, um, painting, so it's not really Greek, but it's about the famous Greek philosophers. And if you're a kind of a unimportant philosopher, you're sort of on the edges of the painting, but the more important philosophers get towards the center, and the two most important philosophers are right in the center. They're Plato and Aristotle, and they're debating. And Plato's going like this, pointing up. You might know this picture, and Aristotle's got his hands down like this. And what Plato is saying is the ideals, they exist, and they're out there in the other world, in Uranus. And the things on Earth are just copies of those eternal ideals. And Aristotle is saying, no, no. These things are real, they're not merely imaginary, but rather the ideals are in the things that exemplify them. So circularity is actually something that's real that pervades all of the circles. Redness is something that's real and it pervades all of the red things. Humanness is real and it's like an invisible fluid that flows between us. And if everyone were to die and there was just one human left, all of humanness would be in that last person. So that's the debate, that's the ancient philosophical debate that they had. So you see how Aristotle wanted to unify the two worlds and give a coherent, consistent answer so that we didn't have physics on the one hand and theology on the other that were separated. He wanted to bring the two together, and that's Aristotle's metaphysics. It's about bringing physics and theology together into one coherent account. Well, he taught that to Alexander, and so Alexander wanted to bring the whole world under one cultural rule. So he's this Macedonian guy who as a great patron of the Olympics who wants to prove his Greek 
heritage, and so he dedicates to all these Greek gods, and he pays for the Olympics, and then he goes and conquers Egypt, and he conquers Persia, and he starts taking on Persian dress because he wanted to unify the world. And again, these are the lessons that he learned from Aristotle. As he's going about conquering, he's sending back plant and animal samples back to the Lyceum in Athens so Aristotle and his students can begin to come up with a full intellectual account of the world and give a full taxonomy of all the things that exist and how they exist and where they exist and how they come to be. And so Alexander is trying to make real in the world what Aristotle is proving is true in, um, in the intellectual world, right? I got to give a lecture on um, Aristotle's metaphysics at the Lyceum in Athens a few years ago. And so Aristotle is very famous for walking around, and so I'm walking around with uh, some students and giving them a lecture, and I noticed so the Lyceum was just rediscovered in 1996. It was lost for a long time. So the buildings don't exist anymore. It's just the footings, and you can just see the outlines. And there was a stone in one of the walls that was very loose. It was about to fall out, a very little stone about that big. And I didn't want it to be lost to history and trampled. I wanted to rescue it. So I very gently <laughs> liberated it from the wall. And I, I have it in my office now in Chicago. And so I, I wrote on it, Ly Lyceum. So. That was, that was thrilling for me. I think I just confessed to being an antiquity smuggler, like, <laughs> kind of like Indiana Jones, so. But anyway, that was a thrill for me to teach at the Lyceum. So with Alexander, you get the conquering of the Mediterranean under Greek rule. And so Greek becomes the common language of the Mediterranean. In fact, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. Koine Greek. Koine means common talking about the city of Philippi, so koine means common, in common Greek. That, in part, makes it practically possible for the preaching of the gospel. You know how we're told in the New Testament that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came. When was the time just right? Well, one of the conditions for the right timing of the introduction of the gospel was a common language, and so Alexander provided that. Now, <clears throat> as you might remember some of your history, Alexander died on one of his campaigns, and his kingdom was, was um, divided into four sub-kingdoms, and that marked the beginning of the end for Greek dominance in the Mediterranean. So the Greeks begin to have less political influence in the Mediterranean, and then who rises up in that vacuum? We all know. The Romans are coming. And so Roman-Italian power is beginning to rise, and they take dominance over the Mediterranean, and they reconquer all the lands and start to reunify the world in a way that Alexander had never really dreamed of. And so by the middle of the first century, so a few centuries later, we see one of the high points in Roman dominance over the Mediterranean with the leadership, under the leadership of Julius Caesar, who's a very famous person that you know. Now you remember some of your Roman history. At that time, Rome was not yet, yet an empire. Um, <clears throat> and they feared having an emperor. And so the Senate, there were many people in the Senate who feared Julius's power, so what they did is they killed Julius Caesar. You remember Brutus and Cassius, they assassinated Julius Caesar there. And Julius's good friend, Mark Antony, swayed the Roman crowds almost immediately and got them on his side, and that made Brutus and Cassius very worried. And so you've got Roman dominance over the whole Mediterranean, but now no leader. And so who was going to be the next leader and lead Rome? Brutus and Cassius were afraid of uh, uh, the fact that Everyone was behind Mark Antony, so they went off to Greece and Syria to secure the Roman armies there. And so Mark Antony raised the Italian uh, segment of the Roman army, and he took with him Octavian. Octavian was Julius's nephew and heir. And they went, 
and they fought Brutus and Cassius's forces. So it's Romans against Romans, Italian Romans versus Greek and Syrian Romans. They fought at Philippi in 42 BC. So 42 years before the birth of Christ, there was this great battle at Philippi. Mark Antony and Octavian beat Brutus and Cassius, killed them there, and Rome, uh, sorry, Philippi from that point forward was designated a Roman colony. So it became a Roman colony in Macedonia. And it became a place where Romans could come and own land. Owning land was really important. And so they were Roman citizens. They got to own land there. And it was a very proud Roman town from 42 BC. So with Alexander, you get the introduction of a common language that makes the preaching of the apostles even possible. 42, uh, uh, rather, four, uh, 300 and some years later after Alexander. And then 42 years after the conquering of Philippi, you have now Roman authority secured, the establishment of the Pax Romana, and Octavian eventually gets power away from Mark Antony and becomes the emperor that the Roman Republic feared. He became Augustus Caesar. And Augustus Caesar is the one who called the census that sent Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus that we read about in the New Testament, right? So Augustus Caesar is Caesar when Jesus is born. And then some 50 years later, Paul is going to walk into Philippi. So that's the, the background of the, of the city. In order to know uh, what's going on in the book of Philippians, this is something that, that I hope you'll do, and, and I'll give some more tips about reading Philippians in the coming weeks. But if you turn to Acts 16, this gives some of the background of the establishment of the church there at Philippi. So in Acts 16, Luke tells us, we already know a lot about Paul's first missionary journey all the way up into Acts 15. Paul returns to Jerusalem. And then his second missionary journey, he takes Silas and he wants to return to all the churches in the country we would now call Turkey that he had established in his first missionary journey. He goes to Lystra at the beginning of Acts 16. And Lystra was a town on his first missionary journey that he had been stoned and left for dead. So you know Paul was this really brave guy. He goes into Lystra, they try to kill him there. He met a man by the name of Timothy. Timothy was a young man and he was really impressed with Timothy. Timothy was the son of, a, um, his mother was a believing Jew and his father was, uh, I assume, an unbelieving Greek because it didn't say he's a believer. And so he's perfect for Paul's ministry because he's half Jewish, half Greek. And Paul is preaching to both Jews and Greeks. And so it's perfect for him and he wants to take Timothy with him. And so he intends to go around to all the churches in Turkey where he had already evangelized. Well, he gets a vision one night while he's dreaming of a Macedonian man pleading with him to come to Macedonia to preach the gospel. So he wakes up and he takes Timothy and he takes Luke and Silas and they cross over into Philippi. And that marks the first preaching of the gospel that we know about uh, on European soil. And at Philippi, they meet Lydia. Lydia's there and she's uh, some sort of uh, businesswoman, apparently, we're told that she, that she sells purple uh, cloth, and so apparently a successful businesswoman, maybe a little bit older, maybe a widow, because her husband isn't mentioned, and uh, she learns the gospel from them. She was probably a Greek, not a Jew, but she seemed to be a fearer of the biblical God. She seemed to um, be a worshiper of the God of Judaism, and she receives the gospel and invites Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke to her house and they stay with Lydia for some time as they continue on their ministry at Philippi. Lydia's house was probably the location of the first church in Europe. 
And in fact, the gospel exploded in Europe, as we know. I mean, that's been part of you know, human history for many centuries now. In fact, it hit so hard in Europe that within two years, Emperor Claudius would have to kick all the Jews out of Rome because the debate between Christians and Jews as to whether Jesus was the Messiah had totally disrupted commerce in Rome. I mean, the biggest city in the world. Can you imagine that the debate over whether Jesus was the Messiah or not shut down the New York Stock Exchange because people were fighting so much? He is the Messiah. No, he's not. You're insane. If that were to shut down the New York Stock Exchange, it would be a real political problem. That's what was going on in Rome because they were debating this so hard, the emperor didn't know anything about it. He just thought it was some intramural debate, uh, some weird monotheistic religion from Jerusalem. I don't know what these guys are talking about. Just kick them all out. And so that happened in, um, in just a few years after Paul entered Philippi. So he stays with Lydia at Philippi, and then you'll remember a very important episode happens. He and Silas are going around preaching, and they encounter a, a girl filled with a demon. And she could tell the future. And so she was a slave, and her slaveholders, her slave owners, would use her to tell people's fortunes. And they got a lot of money out of this. Well, Paul cast the demon out of her, and her owners were really unhappy about this because they lost financially. So they went to have him arrested. And the accusation in Acts 16.21 is that Paul and Silas, they say, these men, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So notice that at Philippi, they consider themselves Romans, not Greeks. They are Romans. They are descendants of Italian military, is what they are there. In fact, Luke still calls it a Roman colony. And so they have them beaten and arrested and placed in prison. And you hopefully remember this story. There's an earthquake there that night, and the, the doors fall off the hinges. And so the Philippian jailer goes to kill himself because if anybody escapes, he's a dead man. So it's over anyway, so I'll kill myself. And Paul realizes what he's going to do, and he says, don't do that. We're here. Don't kill yourself, everything's okay. So the Philippian jailer runs in and he's shaking. He was just about to take his own life and he asks Paul, what should I do to be saved? And so he receives the gospel right there. So in the Philippian church, we know at least the first two members of the church were Lydia and the jailer and probably the jailer's family. So it's a very small church. Undoubtedly, there are some other people. Well, they realize, um, you know, what they've done. They've sort of unjustly um, arrested these guys, and so the next day they, they say, well, you're free to go, and in Acts 16, 37, and 39, Paul says this. He said, no, hold on. These guys have beaten us, uncondemned men, who are Roman citizens and thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come and take us out. Uh, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the, leave the city. Sorry, I'm one behind. The church of Philippi is what we're talking about. So why did Paul want to meet with the magistrates? He said, you're going to have us beaten, thrown in prison, and now just tell us to quietly go away. No, no, have the magistrates come release us themselves. Why did he want to do that? He wanted to register a formal complaint. No. Why did he want to do it? He wanted to tell the magistrates about Jesus. This guy, he's trying to go to the highest levels as much as he can. In fact, he is going to die trying to get before Caesar. And so he wants to tell the magistrates about Jesus, but notice how seriously the Philippians take their citizenship. When they realize these guys are Roman citizens, they are really worried because citizenship is very, very important. And I hope that we all value our citizenship. You might not be a, a U.S. citizen, uh, but citizenship, wherever you're a citizen, is very important because you are a common stakeholder in a common culture, and even we, we all 
uh, have a stake in the wealth, the, the material treasures of this country. If you go to Washington, D.C., most of the um, museums are free. You go in, you're like, who do I pay? You don't pay anybody because this is ours. We own it. It belongs to the people of the United States. And if you're one of those people, it's yours. You get to walk in, right? And so it's our common treasure. This is the traditional debate between conservatives and progressives, right? Every culture has it. Every society has it. You've got your conservatives and your progressives. The conservatives say, let's value and retain this treasure that we have culturally and materially and not just throw it away. The progressives say, there's some bad things in there that need to be reformed. And so often both are right. And so you have this this debate, but it's about the stakeholders that citizens have. That's what the debate is about. So you're a stakeholder. We also have the right to advise and counsel other citizens. So if you're voting and you say, I'm gonna vote for this bill, and you go tell your friend, I think you should vote for it too. And you, you have the right to do that, to tell them why they should vote the same way. And so that's the value of citizenship, and you see how the Philippians take it very seriously. So you'll understand in Philippians 3 when Paul says this. <clears throat> he says to the Philippians, I know you value your Roman citizenship, they might strip it away if you become a Christian because remember, it's unlawful. It's not a registered religion. You're not allowed to become a Christian. But if you do, remember this, in, in Philippians 3.20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him uh, even to subject all things to himself. So. We are citizens ultimately of heaven. That's your ultimate citizenship, which means we are stakeholders in the assets and the treasures of heaven. That is, everything that God has is ours. It's ours, and we have full access to it, and we have the rights as fellow citizens, as Christians, to advise and counsel one another. So if a Christian comes to you and has some sound advice, you don't have, he, he has every right to do that as a, as a fellow believer. That's, in fact, uh, part of his duty to you, and you have the same duty to him. And so... Hopefully that makes sense of what Paul is talking about there with regard to citizenship. So let's talk about the writing of the, of the letter. So you've got Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy entering Philippi around 50 AD. About 12 years later, Paul is under arrest and he's in Rome. You can read about this at, at the end of Acts, the last chapter, Acts 28. In Acts 28, Paul seems to have a good amount of liberty, Luke tells us, and that's where, where Acts closes. So Luke finishes it while Paul is still under arrest, and we don't ever hear about what happened to Paul afterwards. So he's allowed to rent a house, he has a good amount of liberty, people come to him, he preaches the gospel, and he continues his ministry. By the writing of the book of Philippians, it seems like things have become more restricted, and he knows he's probably going to be executed. He talks about his martyrdom a few times in Philippians. So this is 100 years after the Battle of Philippi. He's arrest, uh, arrested in, in Rome. And um, he talks about there, uh, uh, <clears throat> saints in Caesar's household. So the gospel had gotten all the way to Caesar's palace. And some Christians there, Nero is now the Caesar, or rather some people there in uh, Nero's uh, palace had become Christian. So he sends greetings to Philippi from the saints in Caesar's own household. So the gospel really is getting up to the highest levels. In fact, Paul tells us that the gospel is even preached among the Praetorian Guard. And maybe you remember that name, the Praetorian Guard. These were a very powerful military force. They were the personal bodyguards of the emperors. In fact, in some cases, the emperors were re even afraid of these guys because the Praetorian Guard sometimes deposed and installed emperors themselves. So the gospel is being preached among the Praetorian Guard. This is around 62 AD. Now, the New Testament doesn't tell us this, 
But by 64 AD, Nero, who's probably insane, likely had Rome burned because he had some building projects in mind and couldn't get it to happen. He couldn't get the Senate to agree. So he burned Rome and he blamed the Christians. And that, uh, um, in 64 AD, started an enormous persecution of Christians. We read a little bit about this when Peter says in 1 Peter, beware of the fiery trials that are coming your way. What that refers to is Nero would take Christians, of course, and throw them in the Colosseum and have them uh, torn apart by lions. But another thing that they would do, a particular torture, is they'd take Christians and string them up to posts late at night, wrap them in uh, oily rags, and light them on fire to light the streets. Those were the fiery trials that they were enduring. It wasn't, uh, you know, not getting the parking space they wanted or, or, you know, some of our fiery trials, right? I'm really dealing with this. The Lord is working in me. I really wanted that parking space. They were lighting these guys on fire, right? And so... We don't read about that, but Paul probably was killed in that persecution, and he likely got before Nero and preached the gospel, and Nero, being an insane megalomaniac, probably didn't take to it too well. And so the emperor knew who the Christians were. I mean, think about that. Think about that. Within a few decades of Jesus' death because of the apostles' preaching, it was an explosion that happened in the Mediterranean world. In Ephesus, they say these are the men that turn the world upside down with their preaching. It was a huge cultural explosion. It challenged Roman authority and power. The fact that Nero, the emperor, the strongest man in the world, knew about this little backwater religion from Jerusalem is astounding. So that's what happens uh, uh, with the writing of the book of Philippians. There's some important figures that we encounter in the book of Philippians. Timothy we already know about. He talks to the Philippians and he says, I want to send Timothy to you. And he also talks about this guy, Epaphroditus, who was a member of the Philippian church that the Philippians had sent to Paul. They sent a gift to Paul, and Paul's letter back to the Philippians is really a thank you letter. And so he says, I want to send Epaphroditus back to you because, uh, you know, Epaphroditus nearly died ministering to me, and you were really worried about him. So I want to have Timothy so he can tell you how everything's going with me and how well the gospel is being um, spread here. And I also want to send Epaphroditus back so that you're not worried anymore. So Timothy and Epaphroditus are going back, and the content of Paul's message, the theme is joy. So we're going to focus on why Paul is talking about joy and what he has to say about joy um, in, the, in the coming sermons in this series. But it's so weird that the book is about joy because he's under arrest and he's just about to be killed. And it just seems that's the wrong subject. There's so many good things that you could talk about. Joy seems so off topic. Why is he talking about joy? You might talk about, so if I were under arrest and about to be martyred for Jesus, you might talk about God's justice and vindication for the righteous, right? Like Psalm 103 or the Sermon on the Mount. God's love of the oppressed. He doesn't talk about that because he knows that he is vindicated in Jesus Christ. He's justified in Jesus Christ and he will soon be raised to life in Jesus Christ and he's looking forward. He's not looking back. He's actually thinking deeply about his death. In fact, in Philippians 1, he says almost flippantly, you know, for you Philippians, I can stay with you because I know you need me and as a spiritual father, I want to stay with you. But on the other hand, if they kill me, that's even better because then I get to be with Jesus. He's not really crying over it. He's actually kind of, almost in a flippant way, looking forward to it. You might think that he would talk about, um, I don't know, death and the impermanence of life, like the book of Ecclesiastes, but he's not looking back. He's not thinking about death. He's thinking about his eternal life in Jesus Christ, and so he's joyful. He says he rejoices. You might think about, um, how about another good topic, like really dealing with regret and, and anxiety. That might be something important to think about. That'd be a really good occasion to write on that topic. He doesn't use the occasion for that purpose. He doesn't have any anxiety. He has the peace of God which rests upon him because he really is thinking about what comes next in his life. 
the resurrection that he faces that he'll have in Jesus Christ. So here's my quick summary. I just want to give you a quick summary and then a few tips about reading Philippians in the coming weeks. Here's a quick summary of Philippians 1, what Paul has to say. Uh, Paul greets them with Timothy. He thanks God for the lasting partnership of the Philippians. And he, he uh, affectionately praying that they abound in love and wisdom, blameless at the coming of Christ and filled with his righteousness. Confident that God will complete the work he began in them, Paul reports that his imprisonment in Rome has served to promote the gospel among the Praetorian Guard, embolden earnest believers, and even provoke spiteful individuals who want to worsen his punishment to spread the gospel. He is confidently unashamed, whether he lives for the benefit of the Philippians or is martyred to be present with Christ. He encourages them to likewise bravely live in accordance with and contend for the gospel in unity as proof of their status in Christ. In Philippians 2, he, tells, he says that believers must be unified in mind and love, respecting one another, uh, one another by imitating Christ, who though equal with God became a humble servant because he endured the cross. God exalted him such that everyone will confess his lordship to God's glory. Paul entreats the Philippians to joyfully pursue salvation, serve without complaining or disputing, and adhere to the word of life whether he is present, absent, or martyred. He hopes to send Timothy, his faithful helper, to gather a report of their welfare and Epaphroditus, a supportive Ephesian who nearly died while serving Paul, to ease their worries. In Philippians 3, Paul exhorts the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord and beware the Judaizers who compel believers to follow the Mosaic law. He insists that his religious credentials as an observant Jew, while greater than those of the Judaizers, still pale in comparison to the righteousness which comes by faith in Christ, uh, faith, uh, from God by faith in Christ, by which we know him, the power of his resurrection, fellowship in his sufferings, are conformed to his death and attain resurrection. He encourages believers to follow his example, pursuing Christ-likeness and awaiting transformation by his power. And then finally, Paul commands the Philippians to persevere in the Lord and asks a true companion, along with Clement and others, to mediate the reconciliation of Eudoia and Syntyche, two faithful women of the church. Believers should avoid quarreling and be reasonable with one another and avoid anxiousness by receiving God's peace through prayer and thankfulness. We must emulate Paul in dwelling on that which is honorable, right, pure, lovely, reputable, excellent, and worthy of praise. He rejoices that the Philippians have shared in his sufferings and provided a gift. Although he need, his needs are ultimately met by God, he closes the letter with a greeting from the believers in Caesar's palace. So that's a summary of um, what you'll be reading in Philippians, and I hope that gives some context. Here's one last thing that I forgot to mention. This guy in chapter 4, Clement, we read this name, Clement, is a very faithful person at Philippi. After the apostles die, Clement would become the bishop of Rome. I don't know if you know this, but if you become the bishop of Rome, that's a pretty big deal, right? Text your mom immediately if you ever, because then you're the pope, right? So that's a, he becomes the bishop of Rome. This is back before there were popes, so it wasn't wasn't like it is now, but he becomes the bishop of Rome. He wrote the first extant Christian writing outside of the New Testament. So Clement wrote a letter to the Corinthians. That's the first Christian letter we have outside of the New Testament. So this is a real historical person, a very significant one at that. So as we think about how to fellowship around uh, the book of Philippians, this is what I'd like for us to do in the coming weeks. For you guys who are more advanced and experienced Bible readers, the book of Philippians can easily be read in one sitting. 
for um, less experienced Bible readers, here's the difficulty. It's not so many words that it's hard to read in one sitting, but there are so many ideas and terms and references that sometimes you have to stop and think, right? And so it takes a little bit longer time. So for you more experienced readers, I would say read it definitely all in one sitting as if you are a recipient, as if you are a member of the Church of Philippi and you're reading the letter. If you just got a letter from Paul, you wouldn't be like, I'm going to read a verse a day. No. You'd, no, just read the letter. He sent it to us, right? So read it. And less experienced readers, if, if you're slow, a little bit slower because you have to think about things and put things together, go ahead and take a chapter a day. And uh, maybe meet it, read it multiple times in one day if you need to. So we, we read it as recipients, and then we want to discuss it with others. So discuss it in your life groups. And um, sorry, I'm, I'm fiddling with this. Discuss it in your, in your life groups. I've got to get my earring around it. So here we go. <laughs> okay, well, it's close enough. So discuss it in your life groups with one another, and even read it together if we can. That's something that we want to do. Really, the Holy Spirit will do a lot of work in us, uh, guiding us and training us through these things. It'll be very important. And as you're discussing it, um, you'll meditate on it and hopefully ask deeper questions. So maybe you'll see a pastor walking by, and I want you to very gently and lovingly grab him by the collar with your deep questions as you begin to form these things, because that's the Holy Spirit working in you. And that's going to deepen the fellowship of our church and lead us deeper into Christ. And so we have a responsibility to one another. I mean, if you're not learning this stuff, if you're not committing yourself to it, our church is impoverished because God is speaking something through you for us. So you're not a lone gun in this. So you say to Pastor Scott, brother, I love you. I will release you when you've answered my question, right? And so, and you know, he'll love that. He'll love that. But maybe he won't be able to answer the question and he'll say, well, let, let's think about it. Let's talk about it together. And you can always uh, contact me. And so let's be fellowshipping around this. Uh, and then the, the final step would be to memorize notable passages and then really internalize it for yourself. And as I said, we're fellowshipping around this letter as if it was sent to us, and we'll see what God does, and we might be able to measure the spiritual growth that happens in the coming year. This is just the first level of training for us in, in Christ. So the first level is for us to really deeply understand and internalize the Bible. I mean, wouldn't it be great by the end of 2020 if you could say in, 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 in earnestness, I understand the story of the Bible? Wouldn't that be great? Very few people do. In fact, a, a, a shockingly low number of Christians understand the story of the Bible. If you could say, I understand the story of the Bible, that would just be step one, but that would be fabulous for our spiritual growth. The next step, step two, would be to bring those ideas together so that now you can say, I understand what the Trinity is. Wouldn't that be awesome? I understand what the doctrine of sin is. I understand what salvation by grace is. Now you're really thinking as a Christian and you understand the message that God has given us. That's gonna transform your life. So step one and step two, that would be amazing. Then there's a third step. The third step would be to use good critical tools of philosophy to help us connect our Christian view of things to science and history, the actual world we live in. We encounter the world scientifically, and we encounter the world historically, and we want to make those connections, and now you become a very powerful evangelist. And whether you like it or not in your workplace, they expect you to be at step three. They're going to put, push you into a corner and say, you're a Christian, really? Do you really believe this? Do you really think these things? Aren't you a bigot? And you find yourself having to answer them whether you're at step three or not, right? Does that make sense? We definitely want to wire step one, and we're going to start with Philippians and really deeply think about these things. And I hope it's really edifying to you and, and you really enjoy it and you really grow a lot. I'm going to ask the, um, the worship team to come forward and lead us now in worship. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to begin this process for us. In Acts 16 and forward, Jesus says that I'm going to send the Spirit, and he will guide you, he will train you, he will teach you, he will lead you into all these truths by reflecting and meditating on the teachings of the apostles. Acts 2, the early church, 
they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And so we're going to devote ourselves to the teaching of Paul in Philippians by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and allowing him to transform us. So we're going to turn uh, our hearts towards the Holy Spirit, and Josh is going to lead us in a benediction.